Hello and welcome to Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000s pop punk and emo pop retrospective. I am Elaine. And I'm Fletcher. And I'm Adam. And we're back once again to talk about yet another record from our giant spreadsheet of 2000s emo pop and pop punk. By the way, I crunched some numbers because I was using a generic 500 records all the time that I talked about this. That wasn't considering some things, like for example, that I noted in separate cells, charting singles and charting albums. Crunched some numbers, made some Excel magic happen, and I can tell you some stats about what we are doing now. By the way, what we are doing is... We decided, because we have very poor judgment, to fill a spreadsheet manually, by the way. I did it. I suffered through this. With 361, that's the total number of records, of uh, all of the pop-punk and uh, emo-pop albums that charted between 1999 and 2013. We basically used Rate Your Music tags as a reference and then integrated a couple of things that didn't chart it or maybe weren't classified as pop-punk or emo-pop but were related enough that they made sense. We have a total of 361 records on our track list, 359 records left to tackle, including this one. There are 134 separate bands, and there is also like a nice chart that I'll probably put in the episode notes. Uh, The peak has been touched between 2006 and 2008, if you're asking. There is a steady rise of number of pop-punk and emo-pop things charting, peaking at 2006 and 2008, with a slight resurgence in 2013, but that's mostly because both Fallout Boy and Panic! at the Disco came back with very much not pop-punk projects, but just because of how I dealt with this shit, they were included in the numbers. So, really... We are looking at reaching the maximum level of pop-punkiness in between 2006 and 2008. I'm continually impressed by the amount that you are just going through this and classifying and clarifying every week we record. Look, I I am extremely depressed. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the answer. <laughs> Look, same. I just do five shows instead of very laser focus on one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm over here playing Stardew Valley obsessively, because that's even more productive. Look, I've been through that. Stardew Valley is fine. You just I'm probably gonna pick up that Friends of Mineral Town remake that's coming out in a week or two, so I get it. Oh for what platform is coming out? I believe it's Switch and PC, maybe the other next gen stuff. Anyhow, today we're talking about an interesting record. This actually came before Blink-182, Cinema of the State, by quite a while, because Animal of the State was released in June of 1999, 1st of June specifically, while My Own Worst Enemy by Lit was released 23 February 1999 specifically. Uh, we started with Animal of the State because Animal of the State was sort of when pop-punk became this big pop phenomenon with Blink-182, but 
Now we're going back a bit to talk about another interesting half of a pop-punk record that was released in the same year. Well, we have an actual excuse for covering this second, you know. You are aware about the fact that this references Blink-182's own videos in their music videos, right? It does, yes. Well, it doesn't... Re I, I don't know if it references much, but Blink-182 are in, in the Ziploc video, which we will talk about. Yeah, that's supposed to be them from the uh, What's My Age Again video, Streaking. Oh, neat. So we are in a pop-punk cinematic universe, I guess. We have found the pop-punk Ouroboros, yes. Starts putting thumbtacks in my conspiracy board. <laughs> Before we start this, talking about the record, talking about the band, talking about all of the things that we talked about when we talked about Blink, we have a new segment, which is not a fun one, even though it's sort of like darkly humorous that this will probably be a recurring segment in this journey, which is what I like to call the obligatory, which means many of the people who made music during this year turned out to be bad people with bad things that they did so wish even though we'll probably cover those things when we chronologically get to them we should also mention them beforehand so yeah the two brothers in lit which are the main songwriter like the singer and the bassist um, which are the pop of brother after you know in modern time after being in lit after making music well keep making music but they also own a restaurant nowadays called the Slide Bar Rock and Roll Kitchen. And lots of things points at them being involved into the police beating up uh, to that a homeless person on their premises. Didn't, uh, didn't find this one in my research, so this was a fun thing to start at the top of our document with. Yeah, yeah. Again, I do my research very deep. This was quite difficult to find, but there are, like, actual news reports about this like people protested the shit outside the restaurant so thank god so the pair of them owned the slide bar rock and roll kitchen and from the quotes in the news story slide bars managers initially reported thomas only for loitering the lawsuit documents stated but popoff was allegedly unsatisfied with police response to the incidents according to the documents a single car would arrive 30 minutes later and ask thomas to move along thomas would then return soon after as a result, Popov then allegedly told his managers to do whatever it takes to keep Kelly Thomas away. So that's that. Um, none of us are going to stand up for this. I don't think any of us are going to say that the gents in this band are amazing members of the community. I kind of think anyone who runs a small mom-and-pop restaurant has dark skeletons in their closet, speaking only for myself, not the podcast. But... We have that out there. We do not condone it. Nope. This is years before any of it, and one of the members of the band per this era was dead before this happened. So mm, there are people without blame. It is always like a complex thing, right? To say, these people are horrible people. How far can we judge the art that they make separated from that? And uh, it's, it's complicated. This is not even an amazing record, so I don't think we have huge, like, conflict here. 
And again, it was years before this thing happened. So it's a complex issue and I am too tired to like discuss it further. <laughs> then let's not. Let's discuss Pop Punk. Once again, we're talking about a California band because they all come from there. If you research, there are like they all come from like different bits, but in most interviews they refer themselves as like Orange County Boys, which I I I don't know America. I'm not American. I don't know your hell giant like nation thing. My awareness of Orange County is mainly from the TV show with the same name and it's like supposed to be like a fairly posh place if I'm not mistaken. You you may be able to tell me more about the place. Orange County is an upper class chunk of California that is populated by some of the most regressive, irritatingly upper crust Republicans in the entire state. Orange County is a real piece of shit. You heard it here first, listeners in Orange County. Come at me. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, from this hellhole come a little band named Radzo, uh, which was the original name of the first band the member of Lit formed as teenagers. Really not a great name. Give them the old razzle-dazzle. After a couple of years, they consolidated their formation and... After that, it will pretty much stay the same until the drummer died, but that's way in the future. They started with a heavier sound, and they started calling themselves Stain. Eventually, with the name Stain, they get signed by Malicious Vinyls, which is a short-lived heavy metal-based subsidiary of LA indie label Delicious Vinyl. Just for note, Delicious Vinyl is the label that had artists like Jay Dilla, signed with them it was from what i read mostly a hip-hop label but they had this short-lived heavy metal branch that basically produced things only for three years between 1995 and 1997 where malicious vinyls existed and none of them aside from lit were of any particular relevance at least at a first glance but they produced the first record of Lit. Well, at the time we were called Stain, but they had to change their name to Lit because of branding and stuff like that. That's the second time in a row that happens where a band needs to change their name because they just didn't check that someone else had their name. I guess this was before the internet, so, you know, it was difficult to check the stuff, or at least before the internet was widespread. It still happens today. As of the day we're doing this, uh, the former band Lady Antebellum, who tried to change to Lady A, discovered another artist had been going by Lady A, is now suing Lady A for existing. Nice. That's that's a dick move, but okay. <laughs> yep. I'm just saying, this continues to happen. The internet solved nothing. 
the first album they released with, well, the first and last album, let's say, they released with Malicious Venoms, because Malicious Venoms will be dead by the time this record hits the shelves, will be Tripping the Light Fantastic, which is their first record. I listen to it. I am the person who listened to all the records before the records that we talk about, and it's nothing to write home about. It's post-grunge butt rock at its, like, purest. Just like I don't remember any of it. I listened it like four times and I don't remember any of this. The only thing to be noted is that there is already some punk influences on the record, specifically in the track No Big Things, that surprisingly enough will be actually re-released and re-recorded in the record that we talked about. It's the only track the two records share. The rest is very generic, like post-grunge stuff. I could not. I could generally not tell you the difference between this and other bands in the genre. It's a little interesting that, despite that being the track from their prior album, it's not the thing that sounds the most like generic grunge to me on this album. I, I think all of the tracks that sound like generic grunge in the record that we're talking about today, which is a place in the sun, but I always want to call close to the sun, which is a Neil Cicerega matchup, which is not correct. Ugh. Oh, you don't like Neil Cicerega? I do not. Okay. The tracks that sound a lot like generic post-grunge in here are better than the generic post-grunge in their debut record. They're, they have more personality. I Again, their debut record is not particularly good. Anyhow, they release this record, no one really cares about it, so they go around shopping for a new label because Malicious Venal dies. Uh, they, die. they close Malicious Venal. Um, I'm pretty sure Delicious Vanilla is still, like, you know, running and running its operation quite happily. So, eventually they sign up with RCA, which is a big major, you know, was producing, like, Christina Aguilera, I think, at the time, or names of the same caliber. So, you know, that was a big hit for them to sign with a proper major. And with their support, they start recording their first record, which will be their first commercially successful record, which is the record that we're talking about today! A Place in the Sun. And yeah, there's not much more story about this. It all comes full circle. Like a CD. Okay. It's a flat circle. It was a joke. No, it was. I, I, I get it. It was a good joke. I get it. I get it. It's just, you know. So there were three singles off the album, but one fun little fact before we switch gears to the individual tracks. Apparently their producer on this was Don Gilmore, who helped produce Eve Six's debut, and this is amazing and I did not know this existed, I will be looking for it later tonight, the Celebrity Deathmatch album. Yes! What is that? Oh, you don't remember Celebrity Deathmatch, do you? Mm-mm. I don't think Adam was alive when Celebrity Deathmatch was a thing. Well, it had a brief failed revival, so... Celebrity Deathmatch was a claymation series from MTV's animation division that starred Mills Lane, who was a television judge, as a referee where knockoff versions voiced by imitators of famous celebrities would settle grudge matches or drama in the news in violent manner in an arena. Sometimes it could be incredibly funny, a lot of times, it was 
well, let's just say not a lot of it holds up if you look back at it today. It was not particularly good. Though, had actual Uncle Steve Austin as a voice guest multiple times as a recurring guest. So Yeah, they know. had amusing cases of, oh, the actual celebrity showed up for this one. And because it was an MTV production, that probably explains why there was a whole soundtrack associated with it. I don't know if the record was like original songs or whatever, I haven't looked into the specific record, but I just found particularly funny that it was like something that the guy who produced this record also worked on. We're definitely, you and I, I feel, are going to look that up tonight. I mean, it sounds like a fun concept. Anyhow, there were three singles, each one with a specific video, music video, as it was the style at the time. The first one was very successful, it was My Own Worst Enemy, which is the most successful song that Lit ever had, pretty much. It's because it's fun to sing at karaoke. Uh, we'll talk about specifically the song when it comes in the record, but yeah, it's I, I, I love the song. I think it's a certified banger. Uh, the single itself debuted at 98 on the Billboard chart, in the same week in which the Backstreet Boys were letting us know that they wanted it specifically that way. <laughs> eventually it peaked at 51, uh, which it's interesting because it never actually got to the top 40. It did a bit better in the Hot Airplay chart where it got to 45, but it is not technically a certified top 48, despite being a very popular song and most people you talk about it will tell you that it was everywhere on the radio at the times. Huh, interesting. So, tied into this, just because I feel this is the most relevant place I can bring it up with radio and lit, I saw them perform live around the period of this album. A family member won radio contest to get a four-pack of tickets to see a show in town that was lit co-headlining with no doubt. They had an opening band who I did not know anything of at the time, it was a just barely before Fergie came on the scene Black Eyed Peas. Huh. I really would have loved to see that, but as I, they were not my tickets, I had to wait for the person who had them. And so I remember being outside, searched by security as I heard a rap group through the walls of one of the worst venues in San Diego. Oof. And it sounded like it was a show, but I was really only hearing volume and bass. Then came the part where I had to sit inside a concrete tomb descending onto a stage where Lit and No Doubt played in a smoky hellhole. Lit has no live performance skills, or at least did not in 1999. It wasn't pleasant, and I actually don't remember much other than getting a headache through their first chunk of things, but we stayed to see No Doubt perform, and they were perfectly serviceable, not aided by an incredibly terrible venue. Hmm, that's really interesting. It's still the single worst live show I consider myself having ever gone to just because. I cannot stress this enough. The whole building was concrete. It was all a contained circle above the stage where your seats were deep concrete steps, like some kind of effed up Parthenon for giants. Was this in the summer? No. And it was also near the end of the day, so sun didn't come in, but everyone smoking inside really gave it a hellish haze. Oh, right, it was the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Ha. You survived. I did. It, again, as far as worst concerts go, it's not 
uh, it's not terrible. No one was maimed. There were no fireworks disasters, but Lit was just a terrible live band. What? Concrete hellscapes uh, aren't going to make the music sound better? Yeah. I just remember the hideous headache I had by the time Gwen Stefani came on stage. Anyhow, yeah, My Own Worst Enemy gets released with this humorous video, which is sort of like 70s inspired, and you have like this people in funny clothes and outfit playing a bowling game. It's sort of like an over-exaggerated version of um, that one scene in The Big Lebowski, just like a thousand times more like ridiculous. I knew it reminded me of something. I thought of it as the Silent Hill version of Sugar Ray's Every Morning video, which was a happy party at a roller disco, whereas this is a lot of kind of angry dudes bowling in a very 70s aesthetic, and then women come in and everyone piles into the cocktail lounge for the end. It, it just feels like the dark, meaner version of an upbeat track, and that kind of fits with the lyrical content, but we'll get there in the album. The second single is Ziploc Bag, which makes sense because after having like quite a good success with My Own Worst Enemy, despite like the album being like this kaleidoscope of like different shit thrown together at the wall, Ziploc Bag is like the song on the record that's more similar to My Own Worst Enemy. It has this big chorus, it's like a beat, it's not bat rocky at all. So it makes sense for that to be the second single. And it also has, like, this, yet again, trying-to-be-humorous video clip. I quite like it. Uh, well, not like it. I quite... I find the intro quite amusing because it's, it reminds me of a bunch of 80s video with, like, this exaggerated, like, father figure berating a kid for, like, liking lit. It's just, like, it's very over-the-top and it's sort of, like, amusing. You say you didn't know who that father was. Um... That's D. Snyder of Twisted Sister? Oh, right, doesn't it make sense? Yeah, We're Not Gonna Take It opens in much this same way. Cool. I can't tell if his rant is all improvised, because most of what he's saying doesn't match what's on the screen during that. <laughs> yeah. This room is a pigsty, he's screaming as he scatters a perfectly ordered stack of cassettes on a freshly vacuumed <laughs> rug. There aren't any clothes or anything around. It's completely rental mansion. <laughs> That's great. But yeah, he's he's having fun. I, I was connecting the video to like the, the two videos, but I didn't recognize him specifically. That, that, that's, that's fun. That was probably my favorite part of any of their videos, was just that <laughs> whatever the hell happened at the start of that video. Watch this! <laughs> A lit button! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Don't you know that they were technically a metal band at some point, and that metalheads uh, could work with the devil? And we mentioned earlier, but there is also a Blink-182 cameo in this video as they streak through the pool party in what's supposed to be a nod to the What's My Age Again video. Which is interesting, because they do not share a label. I don't think RCA and MCA are in any way connected. I researched this a bunch because they have a similar name, but they are just two whole different labels, so it's just interesting that you'd find Blink in that video. Blink seemed to have a very good agent or publicist or something at the time, 
I could easily see this being a tit for tat. Hey, if you're going to be a rising star, why not get in good with you that never came to anything? Yeah, they bet on the wrong band there. <laughs> I don't think they will have a, a charting single ever again after My Own Worst Enemy, but you know. Prior to this podcast, I 100% thought that Lit was a one-hit wonder thing. I don't think they even classify as a one-hit wonder because My Own Worst Enemy didn't top 40, so... <laughs> You know. It was a VH1 staple, though. It definitely hit that AOR market. But yeah, none of their other singles ever charted on the, as far as I'm aware. I don't know if any from the next record will. I don't no. think so. Uh, but none of the singles will chart on the Billboard Hot 100 singles. All of their record will chart on the top 200 records. Despite the fact that I heard a lot of these singles played as local radio plus alt-rock stuff... Ziploc is a song that I entirely didn't know I had heard until the chorus came up. I just did not remember any of this other than their crooning. And then you're like, oh, that song. It has a name. The instant it changed that I'm like, why is this called Ziploc Bag? Oh, that's why this is called Ziploc Bag. It's still a stupid name. I definitely uh, uh, hadn't ever heard this song before. I could definitely see this being the least popularly played, especially given the third video's cameo. Yeah, that would make sense. Speaking of that cameo, their third video and single were Miserable, which is... Um... Okay. Very budget video. Clearly all of the money went to a cameo from a scantily clad Pamela Anderson and the CG that puts the band in tiny form playing around on her body until this turns into a vor fantasy with her devouring them all one by one. <laughs> the Wikipedia article of this video has one of my favorite things ever in wiki article, which is like slight editorializing, mm -hmm. meaning that at some point when, you know, the, the actress eats the band, the Wikipedia article, I don't know if for the single or for the video, but one of the Wikipedia article notes that as Pamela Anderson betrays the band, which is just like a cool choice of word that betrays like a bit of editorializing there, and I just find that amusing. That is a very strange way to phrase what goes down, yes. Yes. <laughs> this is the one video that I did not watch, and I am simultaneously glad and really confused <laughs> it's very bare bones it's pamela anderson in a blue room tiny versions of the band play instruments on her while she does poses until she starts very over dramatically stomping around and eating the four members okay then that's the final minute interestingly like you think that this would have been a big cameo like a big like collaboration but 1999 was actually not that big of a year for Pamela Anderson because like she wasn't on Baywatch for at least like three years I think her last season was in 1997 she was coming right after the huge failure that was VIP which was her sort of like vehicle tv series which is awful if you ever watched like a couple of episodes of it it's just like really not good it was in syndication here i saw it and uh didn't see much else yeah and it's no xena not even near like xena is awesome hell it's barely a hercules hercules is also good 
That's, you, you, you get the disappointed gift from it. That's like history of television. I love that I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> disappointed! But yeah, like this is, was the time in which she was making like cameos on this and on Futurama. So it wasn't, wasn't necessarily a high billing ticket as much as you would expect for her in the 90s. So the video got some play, I'm pretty sure, on MTV. The Wikipedia article once again wrongly states that this was one of the most played songs at the time with no basis because this never charted in any mainstream chart. So fix your shit, Wikipedia. Yeah, I feel that's gotta be something where it's like this was on the VH1 top 10 for so many weeks as opposed to anything else. Because again, this was definitely something I saw on VH1. Yeah, I, I I couldn't tell you much. It's not particularly interesting aside from the funny war moment, which is just like, huh, some, like, discover their fetish this way. <laughs> Probably. Between the vor and the giant woman. All I want to do is think <laughs> turn into a giant I woman. was trying so hard not to go there, Ellie. I think I missed something. Yeah, no, sorry. We were referencing Steven Universe. Speaking of missing things, was I the only one who watched the fourth video of theirs from this album? Is there a fourth video of theirs for this album? There was a what? Yeah, it's composed of tour footage. I think it came out much later, but The Best Is Yet To Come Undone actually has a video of them screwing around with handy cams backstage and things while on tour. That sounds fun. In brief, throughout this album, listening to the non-single tracks, I was like, oh, these guys seem a lot less grody than some of their singles let on. And then this footage is just them. There's a whole sequence of about 15 to 30 seconds of them humping random things in stores, dolls. It's like, oh, oh, you're exactly who I thought you were from the singles. Okay, screw it, whatever. Well, I mean, at least at least you know now, so you're not going to be like, actually, they're not that bad. Yeah, I take back anything that I was going to say there. Because, yeah, Them Live is about what you expect from excess party boy culture. Hmm. Seriously, one of those is like a Kmart or a Target or something, and they're just going to town on a doll. <laughs> Anyhow, the record did well... The Again, the single that did better was My Own Worst Enemy. Everything else sort of petered out after that. They sort of became a staple of movie music after that. You just go on their IMDb and you notice that they were like in every like comedy music without a huge budget that like wanted to like license some middle of the road popular but not that popular pop punk like fun party song they end up on the soundtrack of stuff like ready to rumble and to be honest who needs to be like a top billing high paid band when you can be part of the film that indirectly led to david arquette being the actual real life wcw champion it's against his will yeah but still they're, they're a part of history they're a part of the the big vince russo universe Hey, remember when Vince McMahon tried to remake Ready to Rumble and it was terrible? What? Oh, did you not see the recent failure wrestling with my family? 
Oh, I I didn't see the film. I saw a couple of reviews with it of it. Uh, yeah, it's got a real similar structure to that movie, except not good. I don't know. I heard decent things about it, but you know. I found myself bored and longing for David Arquette. It's kind of amazing that my father was not a wrestling fan growing up because he was very much the type who would watch any movie whatsoever and always find something good to say about it until he hit his 60s. My father came back from Dragonheart and was like, you know, boy, I think you'd enjoy this. Is Dragonheart the one with, uh, no, that's a night story, the one with Heath Ledger. A Knight's Tale? Yeah, you're thinking of the movie that had a mid-90s CGI Sean Connery as a dragon. Yes. It's not good. Hmm. He also loved the sequels. So, what I'm hearing is that your dad and I are on opposite ends of the spectrum, because I'm yet to see a movie that I actually enjoyed that was not, like, an animated children's movie. Have you tried Videodrome? <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite film! It's good! I would Knowing Adam, I would not have Adam watch Videodrome. <laughs> okay, I'm just saying, it's one of the only films where the main character actor becoming a scumbag in real life improves the film. Hmm. Videodrome has aged like a fine wine... In no small part because James Woods has become one of the biggest chuds on Earth. Noted. Videodrome is great. Also, yeah. Adam, I recommend against you specifically watching Videodrome. It's also got Debbie Harry from Blondie. I tied it back to music. Yay! <laughs> Speaking of Blondie, who toured in some of the festivals throughout the 90s for their career revival, Maria is actually a great single that you are sleeping on. Lit would also tour quite a bit, including the show and tour that I mentioned. There was the Warp Tour, Woodstock 99's disastrous stage presence, and they also did a stretch with The Offspring. And we can dive into the actual record from here. She wakes up lonely. She wakes up So I take it from some of the notes here that we all heard the track zero ghost intro. Yeah, if you're listening on Spotify, the ghost intro is sort of just like mushed together with the first track. They're not counted as different tracks. It's it's generic band warm-up grunge. Bit of like the starty, almost like hints of maybe trying shoegaze and then deciding, nah, that's for like, you know... That's for girls. Too scary. Um, yeah. I just like to imagine the lead singer of Lit being afraid of shoegaze now for some reason. <laughs> Why won't he look up? Why won't he look up? I'm now imagining a slasher film with like a shoegaze band in the role of the killer. That's... They can do their own slowed down cover for the trailer. 
Why can't we be friends? Why can't we be friends? I, I, I think we should stop before Bloomhouse offers us a contract, given that like, they produce movies for everyone. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> the, the difference between the, this and the last record is that this is, you know, post-grunge butt rock, but happy post-grunge butt rock. So, you know, progress. You sound less like every other band at the time now. Good job. Yay. It's... This one's pretty simple. It's just casual. You know, my girlfriend lies to herself that she loves me, but we still have sex, so whatever. <laughs> There's a lot less misogyny on this than I expected. There's there's just some straight-up songs that are just like, oh, yeah, I drove around town with ladies. I mean, you can do that. <laughs> it's really weird because the singles give off the most edgy teen boy band vibe, and then it's like, oh, we, we did some album cuts that are pretty chill, a little bit of a rockabilly vibe. If your target audience is gross teenage boys, then writing songs that make you sound like a gross teenage boy is probably the smart thing to do. Anyhow, 4 is alright. I like how the the riff is very, like, this tangy, like, post-grunge riff, but then it moves into, like, a quite upbeat chorus. It's a cool contrast. I think it's a cool musical idea. This feels like a good segue out of their last album into the sound they put forth on this one. Yeah. And then we move to My Own Worst Enemy, which is the big single. It is a very catchy riff. Very catchy song. I understand why this has become the shorthand for a I'm fighting with myself or I'm a partying punk or whatever in movies and a lot of films. Even relatively recently, I think I saw this in some comedy because it's cheap now. Everything about the lyrics is terrible. Yeah. At the time we record this, a psychic ghost of J.W. Friedman has called us out by discussing basically everything we've recorded for this show without knowing we exist. <laughs> and one of those is that he simply said, a fun game is to take alt-rock lyrics from the 90s and strip away all the subtext to just say what they're talking about. His description of My Own Worst Enemy, which I saw as I was listening to this album again, was, Hey, I'm a domestic abuser. I really hope you don't mind me drinking and throwing up on your couch. It's definitely under the surface if you talk about, Why is my car parked on your front lawn? Can we forget the things I said when I was drunk? I didn't mean to call you that. It's very... It, it basically steps up to the line of saying, I hit you because I love you. Yeah, 
Yeah. See, see, the problem with this is that, yes, all of that you said, but this song is a fucking banger. This is, like, <laughs> catchy as fuck. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, I would have argued with you on the Blink stuff. This is going to be a track that I'm going to find myself humming for a couple of days. I hate it, but it is a good single. Like, that riff is fun, it's iconic, and, like, I love how they have a different effect when the riff goes and they change how that's affected. It builds up very well on the chorus when it changes at the end. They scan the lyrics like a bit differently, which gives it like a sort of almost syncopated like feel. This is a this is a pop song, pop song. This is fucking great. Like we said about all the small things last time, it's got that final verse kick up in the drums and the guitar and that really gives it the way to bring it home. This is a good song. <laughs> like, I get it. I get yep. why you would hate the subtext of the song, but nothing bad is ever said, like, in text. It's all subtext, so I'll take it. No, the entire, the entire thing is just apologizing without taking too much blame. That's all of it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, so fucking catchy. I think that the difference between this and Blink is that, like, I can listen to this and while I'm listening to it, will not be absolutely slapped in the face with the misogyny. (laughs) So I can keep listening to it. I knew the incarnation of this song in real life. And so that probably colors it a little for me. That's fair. That makes sense. That's unfortunate. You know, you can't choose who comes into your life sometimes when family makes decisions. Yeah. That's a mood. We're looking money at you super clean. The fins of flying sculpted silver gleam. Where is she going with a punk like this? I like the looks it gets. I like the way it hits. Talk about down. The the general direction of... <laughs> I mean, I'm feeling pretty down now. <laughs> no, I mean the track. Track three, down. Oh, that track. It, it's, it's a post-grunge song. This one baffled me because this is what I was talking about earlier. It has a very 50s feel, and you'd think going off their singles, this would be a lot of innuendo, but... The chorus straight up has the line about she loves to get down and ride, and it doesn't seem to be innuendo from what I can tell. I don't even think it's about the girl. I think it's about his car. Yeah, it's just straight up a 50s I'm driving around town in my automobile, and that's the track. Because <laughs> I, yep. was, I was reading into it going, is this is this something? But it's like, no, he's griping about his tires being scuffed parking parallel or the chrome fins on the car. <laughs> yep. 10 out of 10. Do you like songs that are about cars instead of sex? 
I don't think this is a very good song, but it's it's cute that he just wrote a song about his car. <laughs> also, I dig the vocals on the chorus. It's softer range from the vocalist. We didn't get any of that on Blink-182, where they were pretty consistent the whole time in tone. I don't know, the bridge is a bit cheesy for me near the end. This is, it's not bad, it's just like, this is fine. It's a way more of a straight-up post-grunge thing than a lot of the other things in the record. Still does that contrast between, like, you know, a soft, poppy chorus and, like, more grungy verses, which is, again, it's sort of their thing, and it's interesting. I probably liked Ford better than this, musically. I think it had more energy, but this is fine. You know, I'm not gonna, you know, poo-poo it too much. I I think this is one of my top three just because of the fact that it's so different. It shows there's more range here and yeah it's it's pretty chipper you make me come you make me complete you make me completely miserable start to a chair and then after this we move to Miracle which is the third single. I'll let you go on a rant, Fletch. Okay, this one is definitely peak misogyny on the album. Uh, we talked about this is the Vore video with Pam Anderson. Clever misogyny, though. I'm, I'm gonna say, this is extremely misogynistic, but also, you make me calm, you make me complete, you make me completely miserable. It's like, on a curve, it's way smarter than anything Blink-182 ever wrote, just, you know, at a songwriting level. Doesn't make it good, but there's effort in this misogyny. Yeah, I think the thing that surprised me about this album is I will never listen to either of them again, but I think this is a better album as a whole than... Enema of the State. Uh, I think it's complex. I think Enema of the State is a better album. This is a more interesting album. I will definitely say more interesting. I think if you put a gun to my head, this would be my choice right now. Oh, to, to listen for fun? Yes. I second that. Yes. Just because even though the lyrics are dire, on the singles especially... Uh, the stuff in between has more of a unique sound on this. And as you said, the the opening lines of this song are horrible, but it is infinitely more clever than anything that I've heard from Blink so far. The uh, vocals probably have something to do with it also. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the singer is like serviceable. It's like has a rock voice, it's not nasally pop punk which again i love nasally pop punk but not in the case of mark hoppus <laughs> yeah, he's got a range that's the thing i picked up from this in the last track is he he has more of a range than you get from a lot of people in this genre i'll be honest though imagining a musical landscape where this record influenced all pop punk afterwards would be dire I can live way better with all music taking bits from Blink-182 than all music becoming a mixture of butt rock and pop rock. That sounds like a personal problem, Ellie. Here, 
I want to give you a cursed phrase. I think that Lit's A Place in the Sun is the velvet underground of pop rock, and that not everyone heard it, but everyone who did slapped their wife. <laughs> I'm gonna go hide now. I notice nobody's denying it. I don't think any of us slapped our wives. First of all, because we don't have wives. Well, okay. Anyone who listened to it at the time, we're doing this as an excavation. I would like to point out that you were at that live show. <laughs> I'm not the one who called in for tickets. <laughs> you know, that's fair. That's a good point. Much like their dead drummer had nothing to do with the uh, restaurant incident, I had nothing to do with giving lit money. All right. You've been absolved of your crimes. <laughs> Thank you. I actually like musically miserable. Like, again... I like the, yeah, yeah, they are very, like, it's a well-produced, well-done song. None of the songs on this record are as, you know, catchy as and good as My Own Worst Enemy. So I don't think I would go back to any of the songs in this record, aside from My Own, own Worst Enemy in my free time. But, you know, this is okay. Good news, if you watch any comedy from the 2000s, you will hear My Own Worst Enemy again. Ew, comedy. I probably won't watch any comedy from the 2000s, although the band did have, and we will tackle this in the next record, did have a cameo in uh, Replicate, which is a film that existed. I'm sorry, what? Extra episode where we all watch Replicate in coming one day. Is this a film? You're going to make me watch a movie? It's Yeah, it's a film. It's a National Lampoon film. There is the actor who plays the protagonist in Psych, if you're a Psych fan. Oh. Uh, it's about mm. two genetists making a clone of a girl and teaching her to be the perfect girl and making her do like things like watching football and swearing. Shrug emoji. What the f- I can't find anything for this film when I search replicate film and then add lit. Replicate as in the name. Oh, okay. Let me try that. Gotcha. That's what, oh, oh no. Oh no. I instantly see the, oh boy. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, that's something I'm not looking up tonight. Unlike the celebrity deathmatch album. <laughs> it's great because the, the, it's one of those trailers who also like tells you the whole story of the film. It's just like, this is literally the film cut up into bits, and you're just like, well, I have no interest in ever watching this, but thanks. We move to the next song, which is No Big Thing, which is from the previous record. And funnily enough, it's the most punk song in this record, despite coming from the Batrock record. This was actually not bad. It was completely inoffensive, very simple lyrics, but, you know, good energy to it. Nothing offensive. 
It's an okay offspring song with less gross lyrics. It's my note on it. That's a good descriptor. I don't know. My, my, my take on this song, because uh, uh, the lyrics actually caught my attention, it's just like, okay, so you're getting mixed signals from a girl, right? Instead of writing a song about it, perhaps you should talk to her. But if you talk to her, you don't have that pop-punk loneliness energy. And pop-punk loneliness energy gives you money. Yeah, look at Billie Jean King these days. He definitely has a lonely, sad boy energy in all of his makeup, even though he's richer than God and married. He knows the brand. All right, gotta stay on brand. Got it. What's our brand on this podcast, then? I don't know, being annoyingly woke. <laughs> I'm the grumpy grandpa. I don't know about you two. Which one of you is the mascot? Oh, Adam is the mascot. Okay. <laughs> like... It's because I'm short, isn't it? Yeah. And also you look mm. like a cartoon character. I can't believe you're bullying me on live television. <laughs> I'm not bullying you, I'm giving you a compliment. I like cartoons. Yeah, you've already gone into digressions on two of them I've never seen. And one that you've seen if you count celebrity that matches a cartoon. You know, it does count. I said it was animation. If I could Anyhow, we move to Ziplock, which is their second single. It's my own worst enemy, but not as catchy. Yeah, it's... It's... That's it. Yeah. It's the same song, it's just like less fun, less, you know, less energy. It's a bit quieter, it uh, has a big chorus, and the variation at the end is not as strong as the variation in my own worst enemy, it's a bit weaker. There's no, you know, it, it's fine still. If it comes up on the radio, I will not turn down the radio. It's serviceable. If it comes up on the radio, I'm not going to recognize it until the chorus, which we learned today. <laughs> yep. It's just kind of amazing. I know I heard this played a lot. I remembered that chorus, but I didn't remember anything around it. Sounds like an anime opening. I could absolutely see this used in anime opening because it would be a cheap license. I, I only watched a single episode of Naruto in my life, but I could see Naruto opening to this. You know what? I'm going to type something into Google right now. Again, me nitpicking the speaker on this. Like, if I could get another chance, I'd put it in a Ziploc bag and keep it in my pocket. Not gonna do you any good there, dude. <laughs> and it has one of the stupidest names on the album because of that line. The keep it in my pocket would have been a better thing given that he says it about seven times and it's not copyrighted. But that's just kind of the whole point of this song. It's everything we did once but wrong. Oh my god, there are 264 AMVs using lit music. <laughs> we struck oh, no. a gold mine here. Even weirder, it's something off one of the other albums, because I don't know what Over My Head is. 
It's all this track. Oh, wait, there's one Ziploc. Uh, someone did one in 2001. Lit, they're officially anime. Ugh. I'm gonna add lit to the list of things that are anime. Let's, let's not create the anime multiverse because guess what? Reality is anime now. Yeah, yeah, why not? That's... I don't want that. You'd best start believing in anime, Adam. You're in one. <laughs> Time to isekai my way out of this nonsense. Truck-coon, take me away. No, this is the isekai. This is the isekai in which someone from another world will be transported. I'm going to trade places with him. A curtain rod fell on my head and now I'm a podcaster in another world? <laughs> <laughs> Before we go too deep into that, I want to say that Lovely Day, which is the next song, has a chorus that is sounds inexplicably like a They Might Be Giant song. It has an accordion sample under it, underneath it, which either is intentional, and it's an intentional reference to a My, They Might Be Giant song, or the other hand, it might be just a randomly making this song sound more like a They Might Be Giant song, or there's the third option, which I think might be was true, which is... The producer is just messing with them. This is one of my top three tracks on the album as well. I don't I don't even like it that much. I've just listened to it and I'm just like, why is this a They Might Be Giant song? It's a... Oh, this one. I like this yeah. one. It's a less boomer version of... Uh, the one that's like... I got a record called 45. I lost my life... It's the whole, yeah, I'm a rock star now, everything's great, you know, I don't have to be boring anymore. It's just kind of more upbeat about it instead of darkly satirical like that song was. Hmm, that's fair. It's just straight up, I love the rock star life, you know, I have the freedom to do what I want, etc. And if I thought this band were smarter, I'd say putting this in the middle, given the tone the last two tracks take is a real dark twist, but hey. Yeah, no, I... Honestly, I cannot hear anything from this track aside from that fucking They Might Be Giant ass chorus. So, I'll defer to you for any other comments regarding this track. Again, personal problems, Ellie. I have lots of those. It's upbeat. It's perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. Yo! And then we have the obligatory love song. 
There's a what? Well, perfect one is the obligatory love song, where the buff rock star dude that looks like, you know, a very 90s version of like what you'd think a rock star to be starts the song by saying that he doesn't even know if the girl that he likes thinks of him and it's extremely not believable after the rest of this record but okay lead singer looks like lit the leads of smash mouth and green day were thrown into a blender yeah a little bit the aesthetics are very much a mix of the two of them and i think the fact that both of those bands went in their own individual direction instead of trying to be the everything to everyone of this album is probably why Lit kind of vanished. But I'm mostly referring to the fact that, you know, this song sort of starts with him saying that, oh, he doesn't even know if that girl that he likes thinks of him or know he exists. And like, given the whole attitude of this record and your physical look, from the video, that line is extremely not believable. I'm already not sold on the song. The rest of the song is like a bad ballad love song, has this chorus that just reminds me of Oasis, because let's throw everything at the wall, mostly in the delivery, not even musically. It mostly sounds like a post-grunge influenced like 80s hair metal ballad, which is not where you want to be musically. Like, that's like the opposite spectrum of where you ever want to be as a band. Uh, it, it sucks. This is my number three track. Really? The twangy country-style guitar over soft vocals. Again, a lot more range than we've seen from a lot of other things we've done so far. It's not good range, though. This is like, we can suck in a different way. We can be boring. Here's the thing. There's an alternate universe where these guys go on to become a generic Brian Adams whatever, but at least it would be them choosing a side. They're going every which way. And the other thing that's crazy is, this is a song that's all about a woman, and it's straight up just put her on a pedestal, she's great, she's excellent, there's no nagging, there's no she's mine, it's just like, she's such a babe. I get tongue-tied around her. Holy crap, she's out of my league. That's it. A nice change of pace. But in context, when you had songs like Miserable, I don't think it's believable, the song. Like, it comes off incredibly phony, mostly because of the context of this album. It is definitely possible for a dude to feel one way about one woman and another way about a different woman. And for those two stances to, like, not have anything to do with each other. Sure, but also, you know, a work of art has, like, sort of an aesthetic coherency, or at least should have. This thing doesn't have. This thing is all over the place. I mean, yeah, it, it's gonna do that regardless of whether or not this is particular song is phony, though. That is fair. So, here's the other thing, and again, I don't think this is intended. I think this is me really doing a reach around on this whole thing. But if you take this album as a concept album, this middle part is the idyllic, we're pop stars, everything is great, I have all my dreams, and the next track is where it falls into the final act and everything goes to hell for these guys. Because look at the initial stuff. The initial stuff is a transition out of their old musical style, talking about self-sabotage, and then... 
cutting someone out of their life. No big thing through perfect one. Okay, hey, it's good. Everything's nice. We're here. We're all having fun. And then quicksand through a place in the sun is just, we tried to be who we weren't. Everything fell apart. My life is collapsing because I couldn't get out of the game sooner. It's weird. Sad trombone noises all around. I really don't think it's intentional, but it's such a weird arc that the tracks take lyrically. That's wonderful. I don't. I, I also don't think that Lit was at any point smart enough to build a complete narrative arc with the, their track listing, but, you know, it fits. Is there such a thing as prog punk? There is now. This moves us to, to the latter half of the album, which I feel is partly the most forgettable. It's, it moves back into more generic. Quicksand is a song that I legitimately didn't even notice when it segued into the next track. Yeah, it's very forgettable. It has a synth that goes wibbly, 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 which reminds me a bit of Motion City soundtrack, which we'll encounter later in this giant project. Oh boy. I like Motion City soundtrack. Me too. Uh, I don't like this song much. The synth going wibbly, 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 wibbly is not enough for me to make me like the song. It means that the song has a lot of problems because generally a synth going wibbly, 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 wibbly will make me like a song. Yeah, there's nothing to this track. Nope. If this were quicksand, it would be very applicable because you would not even notice you were in this until you were halfway sunk. Straight up, the only note I have after hearing this twice is, I legitimately didn't notice when this became the next track. It wouldn't be so bad if I can take a good thing and make it last. Money for the rent, the time that I spend me and my girlfriend. And then we move to Happy, which is which is not a good song, has like this chipper tone, which again, reminds me a bit of They Might Be Giant. And again, there are horns here, which remind me of They Might Be Giant, which I don't think they would be inspired by them, but part of me thinks that their producer noticed the similarity and was just messing with them by adding like slight producing flair that would remind you of TMBG. Here's a hilarious note about Happy. When I say I didn't notice Quicksand ended until, or when the next track began, apparently both times I listened to this, for me, Happy wasn't the next track. <laughs> okay. Because I don't do streaming music, so for me, I put these on. Most bands have their stuff up on YouTube and some official playlists. It's like, okay, sure, let them get the pennies that way. And I put this on, and until... You made the comment about this having the horns in it. I was like, I don't remember that. Oh, Happy is blocked in the U.S. for some reason. 
The U.S. are not allowed to be happy. I had to find this on Daily Motion to listen to it from a third-party uploader, and I didn't hear this until about five minutes before we went to record. Is that why I, I can't remember it either? Oh, okay. I am the only one who listened to the song. I did. Awesome. I did listen to it. I just didn't listen to it until very close to recording. Every time. I think my brain tries to pull up this song. Instead of the song, it gives me uh, Nirvana's Lithium. So, you know. Oh, that's a good track. It is, but not, not what we're here for. This is a generic punk with horns. I don't even want to say it's ska. It's generic punk with a horn. It's definitely not ska. It doesn't sound like ska. There are horns, but it's... Yeah, it definitely sounds more like someone's garage band track. I went back to the previous album to go, is this another transfer track? Not that I can tell. No, it doesn't even sound punk to me. It's mostly like mild pop rock. It's just like, it has like this upbeat, like chipper tone, and it goes on and on, and there's nothing particularly catchy or interesting in it. And it sounds a bit like a They Might Be Giant songs, but maybe my brain is just rotting, and I see They Might Be Giants anywhere. I will just turn around and there are like John and John there like looking at me from out of the window. Maybe you should listen to less They Might Be Giants until we're done with this podcast. I don't listen to much They Might Be Giant. I haven't listened to They Might Be Giant in like a month at least. I don't know. I like them. They're not like in heavy rotation in my playlists. They're good. That was not. And the best is yet to come and done. Which is not a comment on what's yet to come on this record, but the name of the next track. This is the one that had the video that only I saw that was all live footage. I wrote down that it was some kind of monster without the charm or maturity. I stand by that. I take it neither of you know what that is offhand? Nope. Some kind of monster is what happened when Metallica had a documentary crew follow them around for the creation of their Saint Anger album. <laughs> their best album. Oh, it's even better because the film is composed of a lot of them having breakdowns and getting mad at each other, and actually has the cameras in therapy sessions with all of them? I mean, that's a mood. Oh, I actually think I saw this at some point on, like, on, like, you know, MTV or whatever. I think they ran it at some I point. I don't think the material that came out of it is amazing, but I think it's a very weird, good thing that that film exists. Was the... Did, did they already had the new bassist at the time? Because I definitely saw a documentary from Metallica with similar things happening with the new bassist. Yeah, I believe this was after the swap. Okay, then I probably saw this, although I didn't know it by name. Yeah, I think it's their only documentary, so... Hmm. Anyhow, yeah, this is, like, the video for this is just that without any of the maturity of them all being 40-year-old dudes. Like, I assume no member of Lit ever went to therapy in their life, to be honest, just like, standing from this record. I agree. But, uh, I'm making the stance known now, this, this uh, podcast is pro-therapy. Yeah. 
Sure. If you're listening to this, you are now legally obligated to go to therapy. I mean, not if you don't want to. I I did have sex with a lawyer once, so I can say that is legally binding. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> if it weren't for the footage that accompanies this track in the video, I would think that this whole song was like a cry for help, because the lyrics are things like, they're trying to make me something I'm not. There's the promise that kept me here in a track about how everything good comes apart around you. Until you told me about the video, I was like, ah. <laughs> Keeping in mind that this is a band that tries 40 different musical styles on this record, this now has a very eerie tone to it now that you're making me notice this. This would be the most interesting song without that video just because of the dichotomy between singles and album material. But... Again, the actual footage, and, you know, maybe it's the editing, but they had enough of this material on the tour that the editing got a whole video out of it. Yeah, and musically it's still tinged with, you know, post-grunge stuff, but it sounds more like, you know, a generic 90s, like, indie adult alternative song, which, once again, is vaguely eerie in a context where they're thinking about how they're trying to make them be something that they're not. Wow, we we cracked the deep code of a lit. I'm putting more thumbtacks into my conspiracy board as we speak. to the last track which is the title track a place in the sun and i will just like to note and i was very gleeful at this regardless of anything in this track they talk about leaving this town nice i should have had enough sense to get up and leave this town yes the interesting thing to me about this is i can take the lyrics two ways if you take it directly after the last track, it has a feeling of, it's all collapsing now, I should have got out while I was ahead. But it could also just be about a bad weekend in Las Vegas giving the talk about gambling and being in a place full of fountains surrounded by desert. Who knows? Hmm. Yep. Little column A, little column B. Sometimes things have two meanings. Gee, Bill, how come your mom lets you have two meanings to your songs? <laughs> Look, I, I don't think the reading this record as a cry for help is correct, but it will be the the choice that I make in my brain when thinking about this record. Well, let's see how we feel next time they come up, because they are going to recur. Yes, there are about like three or four other records of them that charted on all of them in the top 200 most sold record, which is the chart where everything charts. So none of what they make will ever be actually commercially successful after this, but, you know. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that ever made them money is my own worst enemy and just through licensing. So that was A Place in the Sun. As I said, it was a record that could have existed only in 1999 because it was right in between 
post-grunge being the big thing and pop-punk being the big thing and it just mashed the two together with no care for aesthetics with no care for coherency the songs go all over the place there's no really aesthetic coherency to it that's very punk of them <laughs> there is one really good song which is the single my own worst enemy that song rules and even though you know all the baggage to it i love that song i, I will put on that song whenever it's great everything else is fascinating it's weird it's not particularly good But it's weird enough that I listened to the record through and I was interested and I was hooked and I would probably not listen to it ever again. I'm really surprised because I said last week I thought I was going to hate this going in. I told the story of the worst concert I ever attended. And this was a breath of fresh air. It was not what I expected at all from their album. Yeah, yeah, me too. At least from knowing the singles, that wasn't what I was expecting. In the end, to me, this is like the perfect exemplification of what a really interesting like 2.5 out of 5 talking about racing is, which is not a 3 out of 5, meaning that it's not good, but it's trying enough that even if it doesn't succeed, there is some value in it. There is... I would recommend listening to this because this is fascinating and weird and interesting. It's not good, though. No. No, it's not, but yes, it is. Hmm. I thought that some parts of it were memorable, but for the most part, this album just kind of melted into a blob of, like, all vaguely being the same thing to me. That is fair. Guitars over guitars, right? Hmm. And I mean, I didn't get to hear the horn song, so <laughs> that probably would have helped. I still don't believe that I'm the only one who noticed the, the They Might Be Giant accordion bit, but okay. I only listen to their kids' music. <laughs> I noticed it when you pointed it out, but it didn't occur to me as They Might Be Giants. I just went, there's something familiar about this. It might also possibly be that I'm completely going crazy. I don't know. You listeners, at this point we probably will have like one listener write us about what do you think about that, horror, that accordion section. I mean... Also, my grandma wants to listen to this, so, you know, we'll have at least two. Same song, different chorus. Thanks for listening to Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000 pop-punk and emo-pop retrospective. We will be back next week talking about Clarity by Jimmy Eat Ward. This wasn't a record that charted, but it was an f- important record for the genre. And we will talk about Jimmy Eat Ward later. So I figured I would include this in, the, in our chart just so we can talk about something interesting. Plus, everyone says this record is really good. And I'm really curious because I do like what I heard about Jimmy Eat Ward. So looking forward to that. I'm excited. And yeah, if you want to check us out, please go on getoutofthistown.com, which is our website. You can, by the time you're listening to this, you will most likely be able to find us on iTunes. Please rate, review, and all of that shit you do with podcasts. You know, you know, you know the drill. Uh, does anyone want to plug some of the something of theirs? I would just like to say you can find me at various bits of editing and recording all around the internet by the time this goes live. 
Boku no Stop's new season on Cyborg 009, The Cyborg Soldier, should be live. And if you want to take a look back at 2000s anime and the transition to the digital era, that's a pretty good one to revisit because the series holds up well while being ugly as sin. Anything on your side, Adam? Nope. And you can find me on Twitter at ACCTheMoon. And if you want to support us, we don't have a Patreon, but after all, we are our own worst enemy, so technically by not giving us money, you are hindering our nemesis. Remember when that was a Christian Slater show? Good night. Bye. Bye. I've got the time to stick around I'll catch my flight like a pop pumpkin and get out of this town What's on your mind? There's no point left to keep your image down Let's terrify